On the 2nd of August, 2017, at approximately 5.15 p.m., 21-year-old Savannah Gold left her parents' home and drove to San Jose Boulevard in Jacksonville, Florida. She had a 5.30 shift at the Bonefish Grill, a casual seafood restaurant where she worked as a waitress. But on this occasion, she never showed up. It was a fairly quiet Wednesday afternoon at the diner. Her absence wasn't too much of a strain, so the on-duty supervisor simply took her hours off the roster for that day and thought nothing else of it. Suspicions only arose roughly one hour and 15 minutes after Savannah had left the house, as her father received a text message from her phone number. Savannah's older brother also received a text 43 seconds later. Although both texts came from Savannah's number, her family knew right away that something wasn't right. She had just left the house in what appeared to be very high spirits, but now proclaimed to be running away with an unidentified man without packing so much as a change of clothes. Not only that, but the text messages were riddled with errors and composed in a completely different way to how she would normally write. Her phone was switched off when they tried calling just minutes after receiving the texts, so they immediately called her place of work and found out that she hadn't shown up. It was at that point they called police and filed a missing persons report. Savannah had been gone for less than two hours. Roughly 40 minutes later, her car was found unlocked and abandoned in the Bonefish Grill parking lot, and the only thing missing was her phone. Her wallet, ID, and a number of other valuable items had not been taken. Investigators went through the parking lot surveillance tapes and discovered what would then become the primary piece of evidence for the case. The majority of footage remains undisclosed to the public, but a detailed description of what occurred has already been released. What we know is that Savannah parked her car and stepped out of the vehicle at exactly 5.31 p.m. She then walked over to another vehicle and conversed with the occupant for 14 minutes through the driver's side window. She then got into the back seat of said vehicle at 5.45 p.m. Fourteen seconds later, the car began to shake sporadically as if some type of struggle was occurring inside. The rear door swung open three times, but was immediately and forcefully shut each time. It appeared as though someone was attempting to get out, but couldn't. This lasted for 49 seconds until the vehicle suddenly stopped moving. A male figure was then seen getting out and proceeded to walk over to Savannah's car that was 20 feet away. The surveillance was grainy, and the person could not be identified from the footage alone. All that police could ascertain was that he had short brown hair and was roughly 5 foot 11. The unidentified person reached into Savannah's car and took out what police believed was her phone. He then slashed the front tire with a knife before walking back to his own vehicle. He got in and drove away from the scene at exactly 6.04 p.m. Savannah was never seen exiting the car. This was a crucial piece of evidence, and essentially all investigators had to go on. They had to find out who the man was in the video, and fast. But they also had to be careful in how they conducted their investigation. They couldn't let anyone find out they had this footage in their possession, as knowing this information could allow a suspect to alter their alibi to fit with the evidence. This would take a significant advantage away from investigators during interrogation, and would hinder their ability to build a case to a considerable degree. Over the following two days, investigators briefly interviewed all the staff at the Bonefish Grill. For the most part, these encounters consisted of just three questions. When was the last time you saw Savannah? Do you know where she is? And is there anything you know that could help with our investigation? Within 48 hours, they had three potential suspects whose names were then ran through the motor insurance database. The first suspect didn't have a license. The second suspect owned a bright red 2001 Jeep Cherokee, while the third suspect was registered to a 2000 
2012 silver Chevy Malibu, an identical match to the vehicle seen on surveillance. His name was Lee Rodardi. He was 28 years old and was both the manager and head chef at the Bonefish Grill. Coincidentally, he was the first person to be interviewed at the diner about Savannah's disappearance, where he told investigators that he hadn't seen her in about three weeks and knew nothing of her current whereabouts. It was only from his co-workers that police discovered he was having an on-and-off relationship with Savannah for the last eight months, despite it being against company policy. From what investigators could gather, this was a very popular individual, rising fast through the ranks of his chosen profession. He was known for his charm and charisma amongst his colleagues, and also had a lot of success when it came to the opposite sex. On all accounts, his life seemed to be going very well, but he was now the prime suspect in a kidnapping investigation, and the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office planned their next steps in meticulous detail. At around 5.15 p.m. on August 5th, police arrested Rodardi while midway through his shift at work. They told him it was for an outstanding traffic warrant and took him to the JSO Police Department. Can you do me a favor? I'm going to have you take that apron off, okay. Just to kind of get it right away. I'll say it right here. You can go ahead and have a seat for me real quick. I'll be right back, okay? Yes, sir. The officer said he would be right back, yet Lee was left to sit there for 90 minutes with nothing but his own thoughts to keep him company. Now, think of yourself in his position and presume you were guilty of whatever happened to Savannah, and that whatever happened was something truly horrific. In the present moment, you have just been arrested for an outstanding traffic warrant, yet you were interviewed the day before about your co-worker's disappearance. A million and one things will be running through your mind about what could happen next, and as each second ticks by, the anxiety this will cause will begin to fester and slowly intensify. However, the optimism of uncertainty would still be present. There would still be hope, but this hope is about to be dashed. The sound of the door opening would have been a pleasant relief from the monotonous cycle of Rodardi's own thoughts, yet this brief moment of alleviation would have instantly converted to shock as Detective Ray Reeves walked through the door, the same investigator who had interviewed him about Savannah the day prior. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. You remember me from the other day, Detective Reeves? It would have been at this moment that Lee realized his situation was far more severe than he was hoping. The relative optimism he would have felt during the initial 90 minutes on his own will now be gone, which in turn will greatly magnify the contrasting sense of fear he will now be experiencing. Um, this is my partner, Detective Saley. She was uh, interviewing some of the other folks, waiters and other staff people the other day, so she didn't get a chance to come in at the time. Um, I want to talk to you, or actually we wanted to. You want some more water? Uh, please. Actually, would it be alright to use the restroom one more yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. Come on. Sorry. I'll walk out there. Ah, uh, Um, like I said, I want to kind of go over some stuff. I know we talked the other day just for a few minutes and had some concerns about a couple things. And, um, oh, okay, well, there we go. Anybody else want to talk? There we go. Um, I wanted to talk to you about Savannah. 
So I just had a couple of things that came up that I wanted to ask you about specifically that didn't didn't seem to line up. So I wanted to yes, come down and talk to you. Okay. Yeah. All right. Have you drank any alcohol today? Any drugs today? Um, I took in Adderall that my buddy gave me. Okay. Because I was there so late last night. I yeah, yeah. And I was super tired. Like here, take this. Okay. Adderall. Yeah. And do you normally take that? No, nah, I was. Uh, I've taken one a long time ago. Like, okay. I wouldn't say high school. A little bit after high school, but it's been years. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. I appreciate that. Okay. All right. So, um, Savannah, you said that you knew her and you guys had. Um, you knew her from work. I mean, just kind of fill me in with that. How long have you known her? Um, like I said... The detective starts off with an open-ended question. This gives the suspect total freedom and flexibility in how they wish to respond. It's commonly believed that people with nothing to hide are likely to give a short and concise response to these types of questions. For example, if Lee was completely unconcerned with what was going on, he could respond in three short sentences. I met her from work. I've known her for two years. We dated for a bit. To the contrary, if an individual does have something to hide, they are more likely to give a lengthy and detailed response. The simple reasoning behind this is that they are seeking approval. Imagine yourself in a job interview and you're asked an open-ended question, such as, tell me about yourself. You would feel the need to be thorough in order to please your potential employer. The psychological premise is exactly the same with regard to police interrogations, albeit under completely different circumstances. Guilty subjects will see the interrogator as an imminent threat and will therefore attempt to appease this threat to prevent further aggression. Truthful subjects will have no fear nor concern with regard to the same element. They would see the interrogator as a mere inconvenience as opposed to a threat. I have known her obviously since you've worked since you started working there. Um, I would say probably about eight months ago yeah. or so, we started hanging out outside of work. Um, and at the time I had a girlfriend, um, but I kinda, you know, we kinda connected, me and Savannah. So we hung out a little bit here and there. Um, got pretty close. Uh, we come from, I guess, somewhat similar, um, backgrounds, I guess you should say. Okay. Um, you know, she didn't have it the best come growing up, neither did I. Uh, so we kind of connected, hung out for a little while, and then she started using uh, drugs okay. a lot. Okay. Now, I used them with her, uh, not the same drugs that she used all the time, okay. um, but I did them with her a couple times, and then she started to get heavy into them and oh gotcha okay um so i kind of just uh tried to take a step back and you know put things off probably a month or so ago mm -hmm. um uh, i saw savannah at work and she looked healthy again you know she gained a little bit of weight and uh just you know friendly talk at work you know telling her you know, hope everything's been good. And she told me, you know, that I guess she uh, did a lot of drugs and ended up in the hospital. She ended up missing like, uh, I want to say a couple of days, three or four days from work. Oh, okay. Um, so obviously, you know, me being pretty close to her, I was concerned and everything. But after she came back, you know, she looked good. And she ended up telling me that, I guess, uh, you know, over those four days, she detoxed pretty well. And she kind of caught a, you know, new sense into why she shouldn't do so, 
drug so good for her. so much. Okay. Um, and like I said, she looked good. You know, she started looking healthy. So uh, we kind of were talking, you know, here and there. We hung out a couple times. Um, she came over to the house, and you know, we just kicked back, drank a couple beers, watched movies, stuff like that. Like I said, we did, you know. Uh, we took like some pain pills here and there mm -hmm. on occasion, but then she started like bringing heroin over and stuff oh, like gotcha. that. And okay. That's, you know, uh, my mom was addicted to methamphetamines when she was, uh, when I was younger. So okay. the, those hard, like hard drugs just kind of scare me a little bit. So that's why I took a step back the first time. I ended up telling her, I was like, hey, you know, uh, for one, I'm dealing with a lot of personal stuff myself right now as it is, you know, I'm a little depressed. Um, but I think we're moving too fast. I think we should, you know, stop talking. Okay. Um, and she said, I understand. It's completely fine. No problem, you know. Uh, she said, I'll delete your number. I'll never text you again. And that was the last time that we text. Okay. When was that? Yeah. Uh, it was probably a couple, two or three weeks ago. Okay. Sometime in July. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things you said was that was the last time that you had contact with her yes. as far as, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I mean, you, you correct me. That was the last time that I texted her. Yeah, text or a phone call or a messenger yeah. or anything like that, two to three weeks ago. Yeah, okay. And um, and then the last time, when was the last time you saw her? This is what I was, a bit, I didn't tell you the truth when we talked about fish. Okay. Lee doesn't know the extent of the evidence, but he knows the investigators have something, and he now has no choice but to amend his alibi to some degree and give some form of admission. This allows the investigators to get one step closer to a confession, while also keeping the capacity of the evidence hidden until a more critical moment. Last time I saw her was Wednesday afternoon. Okay. Um, I heard that she has been basically telling a lot of people at work that um, we hooked up a bunch, like a couple of days before that, yeah. and that she was going to like tell about the whole situation, you know, try to get me fired. And and why, like why would that get you fired? I, 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 well, I don't I'm a manager and she's an employee. So okay, I mean, so you guys like, aren't supposed to fraternize? Yeah. Or, okay, I got gotcha. And she just told um, uh, people, I guess, that she was out with that work at the restaurant that we were having sex. Okay. I pulled in the parking lot, she pulled in um, a little bit after me, I parked uh, and I said, hey, uh, can I talk to you for a second? Um, and she said, yeah, what's up? And I was like, I heard you've been saying some things about me and you continuing to hang out and you know that we're boyfriend and girlfriend. And she, was, she asked me, she said, can I come sit in the car because I just did some heroin and I'm a little paranoid. Heroin doesn't make you feel paranoid. It makes you extremely relaxed and oblivious to your surroundings. Some might argue that heroin can cause paranoia depending on the user, yet Savannah was driving moments earlier and was about to start a shift at work. If she was using, she most certainly wasn't the type to get paranoid. Okay. I said, why are you doing that? You know, you're doing really well. You shouldn't have been doing that. Okay. Um, and so she came and sat in the car, and I explained to her the situation. I told her that servers uh, at Bonefish were coming to me and telling me that you're telling people when you're out that we're still having sex and we're boyfriend and girlfriend. And I said, I appreciate, you know, I need you to stop. 
because for one, it's jeopardizing my job. We agreed to, you know, split, stop talking mutually and just move on mm -hmm. and, you know, be cordial or whatever. Um, but it was nothing more than that. And she said, fuck you, you know, you're a piece of shit. And I mm -hmm. said, uh, she said she's going to keep talking, you know, telling lies and stuff about me and everything like that. And at that point, Lee has just tried to cover his tracks as much as possible without giving away anything incriminating. He may have thought a witness saw him at the scene with Savannah and was most likely hoping the verbal argument was the extent of what was seen. He therefore gives away this detail in an attempt to come across as truthful. Yet as we know, the investigators have proof that Savannah never got out of the car and he's about to lock himself into his second lie, which is exactly what the detectives want. Uh, she had her phone in her hand, she got out of the car and walk towards the main entrance from San Jose. So like if, um... So this is... Like, like... I wouldn't say she was walking along the edge of the plaza, but she was walking maybe towards this way. Mm -hmm. And I would say an older model Ford pickup, mm -hmm. green, okay. uh, drove past me and around, and she got in. Okay. The suspect has now thrown away his best possible defense, which would have been that he drove away from the parking lot with Savannah, and that she got out at another destination where they then parted ways. If he had known about the surveillance footage, this would have no doubt been his revised narrative, but it's no longer possible due to this fabrication. This is now his stated alibi under caution, and any amendments that he might try to make at a later stage will have no credibility whatsoever. So she gets out of the backseat and begins walking toward, in the direction of, not necessarily paralleling um, San Jose, but she's walking towards 295 or down towards that entrance area. Yeah. Um, and then she's got her phone and you said you thought she was calling somebody? The detective knows this alibi is completely fabricated, so you might be wondering why he's inquiring into it further. The truth is that he's not actually inquiring, only pretending to. The suspect's responses to these questions are of no importance, and the detective is not information gathering. He's simply getting the suspect to let his guard down as much as possible by making him think that he is being believed. As the suspect continues to to convey this made-up narrative, his anxiety will slowly diminish, his belief that he is fooling the detectives will increase, and his heightened state of mind will decrease as a result. This is a well-known strategy, and the reason for this strategy is because the detective is about to initiate the first confrontation. He wants to catch the suspect completely off guard. Um, she was, she had it in her hand and looked like, I mean, I couldn't tell if she was texting or sure. not or anything. But she had her phone out. Yeah, she had her phone out and was looking at it, and then, um, it looked like she was going to put it up to her ear and then yeah. the green truck came around okay and she how got long in. do you think um it was between the time that she got out and started using her phone till that green truck pulled up um this goes on for roughly 90 seconds and rodardi appears to be considerably more at ease uh 295 all the way to beach boulevard beach boulevard to grove park and then grove park how long does that usually take you Depending mm. on traffic, obviously. This trap, I think it usually takes me about 25 minutes or so. Okay. What happened to your neck? We see a very sharp and very sudden switch. The suspect is taken from feeling assured to once again feeling threatened. It's believed that when the immediate shift from one emotion to the next is so extreme, a suspect can become disoriented and their ability to think critically can be affected. In other words, it's much harder for them to think up lies on the spot or fabricate emotion in a convincing manner. That was self-inflicted actually. 
After a long, nervous breath, he takes three seconds to respond, yet somewhat saves himself with the answer. The fact he stated his injuries were self-inflicted could give reason for the nervous breath and his hesitation to respond, as self-harm is a taboo subject, and some might be embarrassed or even ashamed to admit to it. The detective recognizes this and immediately puts him back on the spot. Why? I just have been having kind of a hard time. Uh, I couldn't... The first interjection from the female detective. She alludes to the fact that the neck is an unusual place for a self-inflicted injury, essentially stating that she's not buying it, but also refrains from applying too much pressure, which is being saved for a more pivotal moment at a later stage. Yeah, I did. And... What did you use? A knife. When did you do that? Um... Sometime in July. You did that in July and it's still... Yeah. Bloody? Well, it's... I kind of peeled the scab here and there at work, hitting okay. it on stuff like that. I peeled it last night working. Probably not the best advertisement for the bonefish grill if their head chefs are peeling their scabs off at work. But then again, the wounds are more than likely a fresh injury from his struggle with Savannah, and they hadn't been peeled off at all. Um, and it was coming off a little bit today, so I peeled that a little okay. bit. All right, let me see. But this and this was the same night. This okay. one was just a lot worse yeah. than this one was. Okay. Um, and that was in July? Yeah. Okay. Um, like a few weeks back? Yeah. Okay. When she's in the car, what is she, does she say to you about what her plans are? So she's scheduled to work that night. Mm -hmm. So she's going to work? She didn't talk about, uh, I mean, I assumed she was going to work. Mm -hmm. um, she was in her uniform, um, but she didn't say, when she got out of the car, she didn't say anything after she got out of the car. They further reinforce his confidence by going back to his narrative of the truck and allow him to convey the story in more meticulous detail. They are once again giving him a false sense of security, only to use it against him at the opportune moment. When she gets in that truck, she, let's be honest, let's, we won't even call her she, Savannah, okay? Um, Savannah, um, again, with this picture, if we're using it in the same place, they, you, from where your drawing was, they drove over here. You're here, and you, they drive out over here. Do they stop? Does she get out and go into work? Does, does the um, truck keep going? I didn't see once they turned the corner past the ATM. Mm -hmm. Once she got in and they left, I left. You because left. I just... Did you run you know, into them on the road anywhere? No. Okay. Did she call you later on or text you later on? Savannah, no. Mm -hmm. No other contact with her? No. So, where's Savannah right now? I don't know. Where would I find her? I don't know. This is a far more aggressive confrontation. It's essentially an accusation that the suspect is involved in Savannah's disappearance. Innocent subjects will usually reciprocate this aggression and respond to this type of question with a question of their own, such as, why are you asking me that? Or, what are you trying to say? They would openly recognize and refute the allegation, most often in a forceful manner. Lee had no emotional response whatsoever, nor an ounce of shock. He answered the question with a composed demeanor, almost as if he knew it was coming. It lets the detectives know he was anticipating some type of blunt confrontation. That's my, my prime objective, is to find her. Definitely. I think time's running out on her. I want, I want to find this girl. I, I need to find her. I um, and here's a couple reasons I need to find her. One is, um, I'm hoping that, that she's still alive. Um, and, and that's really, I, I really do, I'm holding out for that. 
Um, and if she's not alive, then I think she and her family are, are, are due that knowledge. I think Pleasure. that's. I, I think they need some closure, um, because I think the reality is, is if somebody's, you know, dead somewhere, a, a parent would want to know. I, I think if you do, you have kids. No. Okay. So one day when you have kids, you w the uncertainty is is. Whatever kind of a person she is, and I'm not about to say what kind of a person she is, um, because I, I'm not making any judgments. I'm saying that this human being is, if she's alive, then I, I want to find her. I, I need to make sure she's okay, because several days now she hasn't been around. Some there, Things happen to the human body, and people can't stand um, a, a lot of things that can transpire. But the other thing is, if she's not, this family deserves better than this. This family deserves better than somebody who works with her and who's got knowledge and won't tell the police because they're worried about their own ass. Because that's pretty I, that's that's pretty cheap. I'm gonna be honest with you. And I agree your I your is. feelings in it, I don't I don't really care about your feelings. What I care about is finding her. So where is she? I don't know where she is. Where is Savannah? I don't know. I need to know where Savannah is. So I, I don't let know her where know. she is. You don't know because. You had something done with her, and you weren't involved in that part. No. I, I don't know. Tell me something. What can I work with? I told you the last time I saw her. But that's not true because we have proof. This moment would have been rehearsed multiple times before the interrogation started. The investigators would have planned who would reveal the surveillance to the suspect, and at roughly what moment. The suspect had been confronted multiple times, and the situation was now fully transparent, yet he continued to maintain his innocence by clinging on to his narrative. It becomes evident that he isn't going to budge, so the female detective takes the initiative. She reveals their final and most substantial piece of evidence for the purpose of maximizing the pressure. We have, we have proof. And that's why we're sitting here, Lee. At this point, we need this for her. I mean, I look at that little girl and I think of my little girl. My little girl who's her age. That's who I think about. That was my little girl. I couldn't imagine. I don't care what she said about you or whatever, but my little girl is that age. Uh, maybe, maybe and you're not telling the truth. Maybe something gets out of hand in the car. I didn't do anything. Okay, you didn't uh, okay. do anything, but she okay. was in your car. She never got out of your car. She, she never got, got out of your car, Lee. We, we're not saying that you did anything. I'm trying to find her. I didn't say you I did anything. I don't know anything. where she is. Well, we can prove that you left with her in the car. So please, do 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 everybody do a favor and just tell us. Where where is she? You, you've got to be able to, to be able to separate. We're not sitting here saying you did anything to her. I, I don't know. She's on drugs. I, maybe she she passed. I don't. I don't know. I, I'm not in that car with you guys. I know that she's in that car with you. I have proof of all of this. Okay, let me ask you, Lee. Then tell us now if you're if you're being an honest man. Are you being honest? Yes. Okay. Well, let's start being honest. She never got out of your back seat, Lee. She never got out of your your back seat. Video cameras don't lie. Lee. How do you know? How do you how do you think I know this information, Lee? I wasn't there. But a video camera caught it. Tell me what happened. I don't know. What how did how what happened to her? Was it an overdose? Is that what happened? I I don't know. I'm not in the car with you guys. You just said she was in your car and she had admittedly 
had done heroin. This is a cross between the how and why solution and the alternative question. Both are used to lower the gauge of admission for the purpose of getting one foot in the door, which will then become the new foundation for building the case. The how and why solution essentially blames the victim, while at the same time minimizes the motivations behind the crime. The alternative question plants a seed in the suspect's mind, where they are given an alternative and far more morally accepting choice for what happened. It's a smart move, yet the suspect doesn't fall for it on this occasion. A bodies overdose all the time. Is that what happens? Does she overdose? Okay, well tell us, when you left with her in the car, because that is what is shown. We can't make up that. We can't falsify a video camera, Lee. I'm not lying to you, because you know I'm telling the truth, because you know that's what's on the video. How else would I know that? I don't unless I have the video. Where did you go with her? I didn't go anywhere with you her. You did? No. You did. So the video camera's lying? I don't know this, I mean... Well, I'm telling you. The surveillance footage was no doubt incriminating evidence, yet wouldn't close out a case on its own that easily. The investigators need a confession and continue to apply pressure in a relentless manner. They attack the suspect's character while simultaneously appealing to his sense of morality. I'm telling you, I'm not lying to you, I'm not making that up. That's why I'm so passionate about this. This is someone's child. You might not have kids, but damn it, is she someone's kid? We're fact finders, Lee. I don't have anything personal against you. No, no, not at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's We're just fact just finders. We're just happened. doing Where our job. No, no, no. Where did you go with her? Where did you go with her, Lee? Be a human. You're a human. You're a man. Where did you go with her? I know you're not that cruel inside. Seriously. Where did you go with her? Maybe you, you, maybe you don't know where she is now. Where did you go with her? Please. I'm begging you, Lee. Please. Please tell us. Please don't make us waste any more of our time. Just tell us. Please tell us. Please. I'm begging you. I know you're not evil. Just tell us where she is. I'm begging you. Please. Please. Can you please just tell me? Where did you go with her then? Can you... At least tell us that part. At least tell us that part. Where did you go with her afterwards? She didn't get out of your car, and you know that, obviously, because yeah. well, I know we that. That's why we were here. Just tell us where. Where did you go with her? Tell us that. At least point us in that direction. I owe her family. We've been... No one's... Uh, we're not saying anything that you intentionally did anything. Just tell us where you went. When y'all left out of there, you went down Clear Lane, you made a left from San Jose, about to 295, and you get up on 295. Okay. Where else did you go before you went home? I mean, I know you eventually went home, but... I didn't go anywhere. I went straight home. Okay. So what did y'all do when you got home? Savannah was with you. She was with you. And that's okay at that point, but I don't even know what... Well, where did she go from there? Is she still at your house? No. Okay. Is she still in your car? No. Okay. Well, then where is she? I don't know where she is. Okay, then where did you last drop her off at? I didn't drop her off. Okay, well, then tell me.
on me. What happened? Where'd you guys go? We went to my house. This is a breakthrough. The investigators have got Lee to amend his story once more by lowering the level of admission, and this shows that he can still be influenced. As stated earlier, they were trying to get one foot in the door, which they have now done, and this is their new platform to build on the more damnatory elements. We did some jokes. Okay. Hung out for a little, and then she said she was going to catch him and go home. What was going on in the backseat? What was going on in the backseat? For the doors to be kicked open. She kicked open that door three times, Lee. She kicked it. We saw it. Where's Savannah? I don't know. You do know? Lee, we understand. Listen, we understand. We're not trying to hinge you up on anything, man. I'm telling you, I'm thinking about this girl and her family. And your family. She was. Please tell me where to go find her. That's how people remember you. The released footage of the interrogation tape cuts off at this exact moment. The state's attorney has been contacted by multiple sources to release the next segment, but has so far refused to do so. All we know is that Lee Rodarty admitted to killing Savannah Gold. The only information that is currently released is that he proclaimed to have killed Savannah by breaking her neck. He then took her back to his house where he burned her body in a self-made fire pit and then dumped her in a lake at the dead end of a secluded road. Savannah had injuries to over 75% of her body. The medical examiner was unable to pinpoint the exact cause of death. The only conclusion was that it was a violent homicide. The segment of admission was cut, yet the JSO released the footage that came just moments after. It shows a human being experiencing an emotional reckoning so overwhelming, while also trying to process the terrifying nature of his immediate situation. (sighs) 
The instant anguish over his decision to confess, combined with the looming prospect of what lays ahead, will have forged a unique emotional distress that very few will ever experience. It's a harrowing sight, and under different circumstances would be extremely difficult for most people to witness. Yet we are now couched within the context of events that led up to this moment, and this will make its observation far more tolerable, but by no means easy. <sighs>
Lee was remanded into custody and taken to the Duval County Jail where he was denied bond. In spite of the overwhelming evidence against him and the prospect of life in prison without the possibility of parole, he pled not guilty and claimed that Savannah's killing was an act of self-defense, even though he stands at 5 foot 11 weighing 163 pounds, while Savannah was just 5 feet tall and weighed 91 pounds. He claimed that he was in fear of his life after she slapped him multiple times in the face, at which point he grabbed her neck, felt a pop, and realized he had accidentally broke it, resulting in her death. The state's attorney's office had no comment on this motion. All they have stated is that this trial is expected to commence during the summer of 2020.